you want to turn in your Bibles to Mark 3, Mark chapter 3, and we are going to be looking at verses 31 to 35, Mark chapter 3, the final verses of Mark chapter 3, verses 31 to 35. As we get back into Mark, we've had a little break from Mark's gospel over the last uh, couple of weeks, but we are, we're jumping back into Mark's gospel this morning as we slowly make our way through it, as we look at Mark 3, verses 31 to 35. Let's take a moment to pray as you turn there. Father, we, we give you thanks for the gift of your word that we are not left to wonder what is your will for us what you've done for us for salvation in Christ, um, what you're calling us to in response to him, and what our hope of glory truly is. We pray that uh, as we unpack Mark 3, 31 through 35 this morning, uh, that you would give us, as Paul prayed in, in Ephesians 1, the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you, that you would enlighten the eyes of our understanding. As David prayed, open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your word this morning and grant us to be faithful hearers. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's not every Sunday you hear Heidi Klum quoted from the pulpit, but she once said, that family comes first, you're the only thing they have. And, of course, she's certainly not the first nor the last to say something pertaining to the, the primacy of family in her life. David Beckham, famous soccer player, bad boy of soccer. Could we call him that, maybe? I don't know. He once said, my priority is always the family. Backstreet Boy heartthrob, Nick Carter, it's been a while since you've heard that name. He publicly claimed that for him, my family comes first before anything, they are everything to me. Uh, Backstreet Boys are not your, your style. Tim McGraw, country music superstar, says of himself and his wife, Faith Hill, we're parents first. Once you have kids, everybody knows that you have priority lists. Number one is your family and everything else just finds its place. If you're more into politics, Vice President Kamala Harris has made the same abundantly clear to those who work with her. She once said that the people who work for me know that family comes first. If you're a big fan of The Office, like me, John Krasinski, it's better known as, as Jim Halper, of course, says that family comes first for him in every single way. Jada Pinkett Smith, she agrees. She says it's very important to prioritize. I know for me, family comes first. That makes every decision very easy as everything else just kind of falls into place. Now that's just a small sampling of the many people who claim to prioritize family first. It's a very common sentiment. And one that, frankly, we often love to hear, right? I, especially in a society and a culture wherein the, the breakdown of the family is of increasing concern. I, I came across um, uh, a quote from uh, just under 40 years ago, a preeminent sociologist, 
uh, Amitai at Zioni, and he said this. He said, according to his calculations, if the nuclear family continued to be dismembered at the same accelerating rate, at the time that he was writing this at least, by the year 2008, there would not be a single American family left. Of course, we live in 2021. The worst has not happened but it seems as if the, the institution of the family is under greater threat and possibly ever in recent history. And so for those of us who, who rightly value the family, whenever we hear others affirm the importance of family, we celebrate and say, go Tim McGraw, you're right. Keep loving your family well, right? And what's more is that you might even be likely to hear many of us as Christians, people in this very room, echo the same sort of sentiments. Family comes first. There's nothing more important. Family is first priority. My marriage comes first. My kids come first. Blood is thicker than water, all the rest of it. And yet while those kinds of of statements may initially seem good, And while those might be very acceptable things to say and think in our kind of American church culture, we should pause to ask ourselves, is that what Jesus taught? Is that what Jesus taught? Did he teach that family comes first before everything else? And these are important questions because we all have have, uh, some sort of family ties in some way, shape, or form. Not all of us are married, not all of us have kids, but, but all of us have some sort of family ties, some sort of blood or covenantal relationships which could be defined as family. And so how should we prioritize our families as disciples of Jesus Christ, as members of his church? Should family be first? Should it be everything? Should it be above all? Should it be our first priority in life? Should we disregard the family and treat our families as unimportant? Is there another way? And while we might not be able to answer every question we have about our familial relationships in this sermon, Mark 3, 31 through 35 offers some clarifying words. And so we're going to explore Mark 3, 31 through 35 this morning. We will read, however, starting in verse 20 of chapter 3 and then on in through uh, verse 35. And so if you'd stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, Let's listen with reverence and joy. Let's listen with the same reverence as if the Lord Jesus Christ was physically standing here among us this morning saying these words. These words come to us with the very same weight and authority. So let's listen with with a reverential joy to the word of our God and King. Mark 3, reading 20 through 35. Then he went home. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. 
Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, here we're going to be Again, primarily looking at verses 31 to 35, where we see Jesus receive a demand for his attention from his family. And then we see his his kind of subsequent teaching about the family to those around him in response to his family's demand. And as we unpack this, I think what we're going to find is our big idea this morning is that God is forming a new family, is building a new family, a family which is centered on Jesus Christ. And that Jesus Christ and the will of God and this family takes priority in the life of a disciple of Jesus. Look here at the story starting in verse 31. And Jesus' mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. Now, although we haven't, yet been introduced to Jesus' earthly family in Mark's gospel. And although they're, they're actually not specifically named here, we know who Jesus' mother is. It's Mary, of course. We actually see her later in, in Mark 6, 3. And uh, we find her named there as well. And we also find with her there the appearance of Jesus' brothers again, who are also named there as James, Joseph, which is uh, like another name for, for uh, Joseph, another way of saying the name Joseph. Uh, Judas, also known as Jude, not to be confused with Judas Iscariot, but, but uh, Jesus' brother Jude, and Simon. Of course, we know James well as he later uh, becomes a follower of Christ after his resurrection and becomes a very prominent pastor in Jerusalem in the church there. And uh, we know Judas or Jude uh, as well. We spent some time preaching through his uh, letter uh, over the, this past summer. Uh, But it's important to point out here that while Mary and at least some of Jesus' brothers later went all in as followers of Jesus, here they seem to be in some ways opposed to him and to his ministry in Capernaum. Okay, we saw as we read in verse 21 that on an earlier occasion, at least some of his family members were trying to to seize him, to, to take control of him, to commit him because they thought that he was out of his mind. They thought he'd gone crazy. And, and this is taking place within this, this larger context of Mark 3. Remember the context here where we see all of these various groups opposing the person and ministry of Jesus and Jesus' family is evidently one such group. And so while in one sense, you know, 
Uh, Mark's describing Jesus' family as being outside is just a physical description, you know. They're, they're outside, and, and Jesus is in a house uh, surrounded by people who are with him and listening to him teach, and, and it was evidently so crowded that his family could not get in. So they were physically outside, and yet in another sense, part of Mark's point in this chapter seems to be that their being outside actually describes their spiritual state as well. They're not yet in this, in this new covenant family that God is forming in and through and by Jesus Christ because they have not trusted and followed Christ as the Messiah who's bringing God's kingdom. And so they're outside in more than one sense here. And yet they seem to think that their familial connection with Jesus ought to give them something of an in with him. Right? They, they, they assume that, in their, that, that their blood relation to Jesus would give them a sort of backstage pass to Jesus here. And so they sin for him. They, they, they pass word through the crowd, many of whom would probably just assume that Jesus would, would honor his family's wishes here. Uh, they are his family after all, and, and they lived in a time and place and culture which valued family very, very highly, far more than, than ours does probably. And so they pass word on to Jesus as Mark goes on to tell us in, in verse 32, writing, and a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Okay, and Jesus' response is surprising. It's surprising. Verse 33, and he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? Wow. Now, upon initial glance, doesn't that seem kind of cold? I mean, Jesus, this... This woman, this is the woman that gave birth to you. These are your brothers, your own blood. But remember here, it's not as if they're, they're sending for him to tell him like what time dinner is that night or to tell him that there's an Amazon package that came for him or something like that. They're not just going to him to, to give him an update on what's going on at home. No, remember verse 21 where they tried to seize Jesus and they said that he was out of his mind. So with that, in, in the sort of immediate context of this event, Mark is trying to show us something. He's trying to tell us that they're sending for Jesus here because they're wanting to interfere with or put an end to his ministry in Capernaum. Okay, they're trying to interfere with what God had called and sent Jesus to do, which if you'll remember, Mark 1.38, I know it's been a while since we've been there, the, the, the reason Jesus was sent is to go throughout the region to preach the good news of God's kingdom coming himself. And that's what he's doing here. The crowd is around him. What's he presumably doing? He's teaching, he's preaching, he's declaring the message of the kingdom of God, and yet his family wants to interfere to put a stop to this madness. And yet, of course, Jesus is actually so committed to teaching and preaching about the kingdom of God that he actually uses this event as an opportunity to teach and preach about the kingdom of God. And so verses 34 and 35, looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Verse 33 is shocking. Our jaws should be hitting the floor right now. Are you kidding, Jesus? Family first. Didn't you hear what Nick Carter said? You see here how, how Jesus is actually revolutionizing our common conception of family and our commonly practiced priorities concerning the family. Some of you are bothered right now. I know it. 
He's actually teaching the primacy of God's will and God's people. He's actually holding up the importance of the family of God, the church, and the will for his people as, and his will uh, for, for God's people as the church. Sinclair Ferguson, he says concerning this text, he summarizes it very well. He says, natural ties are not the only bonds in this world, nor are they necessarily the most lasting ones. They are of great importance, but they do not have priority over our commitment to God's will and his family. Those bonds are the most basic of all. They were in our Lord's life, and they must be in ours too. Now, Garen, I'm going to mess you up here because I'm going to go way out of order, so I'm sorry. I feel like i got to go out of order here. Now, perhaps we need to add a caveat because, indeed, you know, we live in a time wherein many devalue the family. You know, you, you, you may have noticed the, the narrative of many Disney movies. Take one Disney movie, just for example. Take Zootopia, okay? The popular Disney movie. And what's it about? It's about a, a female bunny who, when she grows up, she wants to be a police officer in the big city, and her parents are completely against it. They are farmers. That's what bunnies do. We grow carrots. And so what does she do? She escapes to the big city, leaves her family behind, becomes a police officer, and saves everyone from the societal corruptions in that big city. What's the message movie sense? Family is going to get in the way of you becoming who you want to be, and you're impacting the world for good. So leave them behind. Is that what Jesus is teaching here? Is he teaching that? And not only that, you know, but we live in a time where in Many in our society, maybe not many, but some at least in our society, are actually calling for the dismemberment of the family. There are some today who go as far to claim that the family is a tool of oppression in our society and who would celebrate its demise. Is, is Jesus opening the door for that here? I think it's safe to say no. We should be careful to say here that Jesus is not teaching and calling for for that kind of ideology, nor is he opening the door for it. Jesus is not calling for complete abandonment or severing of family ties here. And we can say that with certainty because Jesus in the Gospels, in the Bible as a whole, in many places, reinforces the importance of family. And just later in Mark's Gospel, in Mark 10, 9, Jesus, he's teaching about marriage and, and divorce. And what does he say? He says this, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate, right? Evidently, Jesus values marriage. He thinks it's important so much so that he teaches against divorce, except for a few exceptional circumstances. And not only that, but later in Mark, in Mark 7, 9 through 13, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for what? For breaking the fifth commandment. What's the fifth commandment? Honor your father and mother. Exodus 20, 12. That's one of our first memory verses that we teach our kids in our house. Um, but that's, that's an important one. And, and, and there, Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees because they, they are breaking this commandment in a particular way in that as their parents age and they get older... They are not financially and materially supporting their parents in their old age because instead they give that money that they would usually give to support their parents to God. And so evidently Jesus thinks it's really important 
to financially support your parents in their old age. And not, and not doing so, when you're capable of doing so, according to Jesus, is breaking the fifth commandment. Jesus rebukes the Pharisees fiercely for this. Moreover, we see Jesus show the kind of care he's calling for here for his own mother. If you look at John 19, 26 through 27, there Jesus is literally hanging on the cross, suffering, bleeding, asphyxiating, and he sees there below, he sees his disciple John and his mother Mary. And he's concerned for his mother, and he's concerned about who will care for her in her old age. And so he says to John and Mary, he says, woman, behold your son. And then he said to his disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. What a sweet and caring way of just loving his mother. He appointed a caretaker for his mother because he wanted to honor her and care for her in his old age. Jesus seems to think that family is enormously important. Not unimportant. And not only in the Gospels. I mean, you can read the entire witness of the Scriptures on this theme. The author of Hebrews, Hebrews 13.4, says, Let marriage be held in honor among all. Ephesians 5.22-6.4 is very important, detailed instructions about how we're to order our households for husbands and wives and parents and children as does Colossians 3, 18 through 21, of 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. If you look at the, ton, the, the 10 commandments, top 10, right? Top 10. You see two commandments that instruct us to value the family. The, the fifth commandment, to honor your parents. The seventh commandment, to honor marriage. And so, my friends, we, we need to be crystal clear. Jesus is not denouncing the institution of the family, but, but, He's getting at the issue of priority. He's not denouncing the family or dismantling or dismembering it. But he is saying that while family is important, it's not of primary importance. It's not first above all. He is, his kingdom is, and he refuses to be in competition with anything or anyone else as first priority in the life of his disciples. Family is important. Jesus wants us to be clear. It's not ultimate. God's will is. His people are. Jesus says here, here are my mother and my brothers. They take priority over those outside sending for me because they are those who are doing the will of God. Now, that brings up a, a very good question. If God's will is what is ultimate, if, that what makes, if that's what makes us part of God's family, what is God's will? More pointedly, what is God's will that Jesus is referring to here? What, what, what specifically is the will of God that Jesus is referring to here? What does he mean when he says the will of God? What is it that God wants from us and for us? What is it that he's desiring us to do? Well, notice the conjunction there at the beginning of verse 35 that connects the statement that Jesus makes there with what he says in verse 34. He says, for... For, right? These are my brother and brothers. For, that's an important word. For, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. That, that conjunction shows us that the people who Jesus calls his mother and brothers are the ones who are doing the will of God. And so we should ask, what are they doing? Look at verse 34 to see what they're doing because apparently that is the will of God and that's what we want to be doing. 
If we look at verse 34, what are they doing? They're sitting around Jesus. They're just sitting there listening to Jesus, hearing Jesus teach and preach. Guys, that's the will of God for us. Consider, again, what Jesus called his disciples to do, as we saw earlier in Mark 3, 14. What did he call them to do? What was the purpose he called them? To be with him, to follow him, to listen to him. And when we looked at Mark 3, 14, remember the, the text that we used to illustrate this, Luke 10, 38 through 42, where two sisters, Martha and Mary, have Jesus over for dinner, and Martha's kind of up, going about serving, cooking, cleaning, while Mary sat at Jesus' feet and just listened to him. And what did Jesus say to Martha in verse 31? Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. That's one thing. Only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion. And what was Mary doing? Sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him. Friends, God the Father makes it abundantly clear that this is his will for us. And this is the, the, the sort of one of the predominant themes here in the first eight chapters of Mark is that we ought to listen to Jesus. Mark 9, 7, God says, this is my beloved son. What? Listen to him. Listen to him. This is the will of God for us, friends, to be with Jesus and to listen to him, to listen to him, to listen to his teaching, his preaching, to listen to his word, to to listen to him as our first priority above all. That is the will of God. That is what makes us belong to God's family. And so with that, as we just move on into a few pieces of application, first, Make being with and listening to Jesus your highest priority. This is God's will for us as his people, to listen to Jesus. Of course, Jesus has has died, risen, and ascended. He's in heaven, seated at the right hand of God. He's not walking the earth, so we simply can't find him on a map and go there to do this. But we are still called to listen to Jesus today. And he's given us a way of still hearing and listening to him today. It's called the Bible. It's an amazing book. The Bible is the word of Jesus. Every word of it is the word of Christ. Every word of it is his voice speaking to us, teaching us, declaring to us. This is why we place such a huge emphasis on preaching here at Veritas. And not just preaching, but expositional preaching. Expositional preaching is a method of preaching wherein the the content of the text is the content of the sermon. And the sermon serves to exposit or to expose what a particular scripture text says. That's what we're trying to do right now. That's what we're trying to do every Sunday, to show and declare and apply what the Bible itself is saying so that we might be a people who hear and listen to Jesus because that's God's will for us. A while back, I remember um, I heard a pastor in Washington, D.C. by the name of Mark Dever tell a story about a time he was giving a lecture about the importance of Bible and teaching in England, uh, historically in the church there. And the place in which he was giving the lecture was this old uh, cathedral. It was built in the 16th century. And the building had still a lot of the, the original details of, of when this congregation gathered there. And Dever pointed one of these details out as he spoke there. Uh, attached to the pulpit, kind of off to the right, um, there was uh, a little metal spiral thing that went up like this. And uh, you can still find this from many 
uh, on many pulpits from this time period. And he asked the students there if they knew what this little metal spiral was for. No one did. So uh, he, he explained it to them. They were gifts from the congregation, commonly given to uh, a preacher during this time period. And uh, that would have uh, been a, a, a place that they could put an hourglass to help them keep time on their preaching. And as he's explaining this to the students, he could see somewhat worried expressions on their faces. Um, and he said to them, you know, these congregations would give these hourglass holders to the ministers because they would give them one to two turns of the hourglass uh, for them to keep time on their preaching. And when he said this, he heard an audible gasp from those in the audience, the general feeling, I guess, that one to two turns of an hourglass would be entirely too long. And one person burst out, what time did that leave for worship? Of course, what they meant by that is, what time did that leave for singing? And after taking a moment to compose himself at such a ghastly question, Dever uh, said to them, he said, well, you know, I, I think when you realize that some of the people sitting there may well have remembered the smell of burning human flesh for having the Bible translated into a language that they could read and understand, that they well knew that the chief worship they could offer to God was to hear his word and respond to it with faith and trust. And if they got to obey that part of God's word that told them to sing, then that was a wonderful part of their worship. But they knew that the chief act of worship they could offer was hearing and obeying God. And that's exactly Right, that is our chief act of worship. That is God's will for us. And friends, we don't need to, to, to have witnessed the martyrdom of, of friends and families for the word of God to know that, that we ought to prize and treasure hearing the word of Christ. We see here in Mark 3, 31 through 35, that we ought to prize it simply because it is God's will for us. It is his desire for us. It is our highest calling in life. And honestly, Veritas, this is one of the things I love so much about you. I love so much about you that, that you highly value listening to and hearing the word of God. I honestly feel so privileged to be a pastor in a church of people that desire to hear God's word proclaimed and delight, in, a congregation who delights in listening to God's word proclaimed. And let me just encourage you in that. To do that all the more, to continue on, to persevere, and to grow more and more in being careful students of God's word because it's precious. It ought to be treasured by us. It ought to be prized by us. But then this theme of, of hearing and listening is actually exactly what Jesus is going to go on in the next two texts in our series to, to address more clearly and more directly, what it looks like to be a faithful hearer and listener of, of God's holy word. And so we're going to leave that here for now and move on to second, value but do not overvalue your family. Value but do not overvalue your family. Again, we can recognize here that Jesus is not denouncing the importance of family, but he is calling us to to. Uh, rightly order our priorities and to rightly order our loves. This is abundantly clear from this passage that family is not the most important thing. In the Bible, family is important, but never enthroned. It is a gift, but it is not God. This is probably particularly important for us, for, for churches like us to hear. Because it might be safe to say that that perhaps the most acceptable form of idolatry in theologically conservative churches like ours is the idolatry of the family. 
at least functionally so. And yet, it is worth asking the question, what will it profit you if you gain an idealized earthly family but forfeit your own soul? What will it profit you if you have the desired amount of children and they meet all of your desires and expectations if you forfeit your own soul? What will it profit you if you gain your dream spouse and live happily ever after if in the end you forfeit your own soul? Can I just tell you that a family is the thing that you worship, the thing that you place all your faith and hope in, the thing that you find your identity in, you will inevitably be crushed. You will be utterly disappointed. Family is a, it's a wonderful gift, but they will fail you. Your family will fail you. Your family will disappoint you. Your family will sin against you. They will not meet all of your expectations if you worship them. And, and even if they did, if you have the ideal family in every single way, one day they will die and you will lose them and you will be left with nothing. What will you gain in that day? And not only will you be crushed, my friends, but if you prioritize your family above all, you're also going to crush your family, right? No human being, no community is capable of holding up under that kind of pressure. Only God is strong enough to handle the weight of your worship. It is parents who worship their children that end up crushing their children under the weight of their expectations and pressure. It is the people that worship their spouses that end up crushing them under the weight and pressure of being something they can never live up to. And therefore, it is only when you worship and love Christ as you ought that you will then and only then be enabled and empowered to love your family as you ought. And C.S. Lewis, he gets at this in, in a letter that he actually writes to a loved one. He's writing about the importance of family but he says this, he says, to love you as I should, I must worship God as creator. When I've learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. Insofar as I learn to love my earthly dearest at the expense of God and instead of God, I shall be moving towards the state in which I shall not love my earthly dearest at all. When first things are put first, second things are not suppressed but increased. Calling us to order our loves well, to value but not overvalue family. And kind of along with this principle, perhaps we should address this. You know, very briefly, how does this inform our responsibilities and obligations toward our parents or, or in-laws in adulthood? The reason I bring this up is because you know, I've had several of you actually approach me in recent times for, for counsel concerning how to deal with very strained relationships with parents and in-laws and even adult siblings. And, and while it would be actually impossible to, to get into all of the intricacies of each unique circumstance, some principles are clear here. For one, it is clear we are not required to honor every wish or demand from our families, particularly when our families' wishes or demands would interfere with us doing the will of God. Okay, Jesus makes that abundantly clear here. He, he upholds the primacy of God's will in people. And while his family is seeking to interfere with him doing God's will, he refuses to honor their wishes and demands. However, we, we should also 
make abundantly clear here that we should not be too eager to sever family ties. We don't overvalue family, but we don't undervalue it either. Don't be too eager to, to, to sever family ties. And I say that because we are living in a time where this is becoming increasingly common. There's an, an article in the Atlantic address a little while ago uh, that addressed this, a piece called A Shift in American Family Values is Fueling Estrangement. And it's fascinating. Apparently, the data is showing that relationships between parents and their adult children are increasingly becoming severed at surprising rates. And aside from the you know, the obvious and kind of understandable reasons given, like abuse and, and, and a history of abuse and things along those lines, much of the time on the children's side of things, the adult children's side of things, it has to do with clashes in values, often political values, relational tensions and difficulties, feeling unsupported. And yet part of what is significant here in Mark 3, part of what ought to stand out to us is the fact that we never actually see Jesus sever his family ties with Mary and his brothers. He never actually breaks off relationship with them. He doesn't let them interfere with him doing the will of God, but he doesn't sever ties with them simply because they tried. Why? Because he valued but did not overvalue the family and his relationships with his family. A third, do not confuse Christ's ties with family ties. Here in our text, we can see that Jesus' family assumes that they have an in with him simply because of their blood relation. And and what Jesus makes crystal clear here is that no one gets into the kingdom and family of God simply because of who their family is, right? What gets us into the kingdom and family of God is not blood relation, but our spiritual relation to Jesus. And that may seem very obvious to some of you, But for many Christians throughout church history and still today, that is not as obvious. You may or may not realize it, but this is one reason that we do not practice infant baptism as a church. Such a practice declares individuals to be part of God's family simply because of who their parents are. If if your parents are Christians, then you are too. And so you ought to be baptized. And yet, that seems to completely oppose what Jesus is saying here. You don't get into the family of Jesus simply because of who your blood family is, because of who your spouses or siblings are or parents are, boys and girls. This is something you need to recognize this morning. You may very well think of yourself as a Christian simply because your mom and dad are Christians. But we need to be clear, you are not automatically a Christian simply because of who your parents are. You need to hear Jesus and listen to Jesus and respond with faith and trust to Jesus for yourself. Friends, I I know that there are dangers associated with with, uh, American individualism influencing our Christianity too much and that we need to be careful here. But one thing we ought not be afraid to be clear about is that at the end of the age, When you stand before God and give an account, each of us will do so as an individual. Your dad, your mom, your spouse will not stand before God and give an account for you. You will stand before God as an individual and give an account for yourself as an individual. And the question will not be whether your mom or dad or sister or brother or whoever trusted in Jesus, but whether or not you trusted in Jesus. Don't confuse Christ's ties with family ties. Trust in Jesus and do so for yourself. And fourth, approach church 
as family, not like a consumer. One of the most beautiful parts of our passage, I love this this morning, is that it shows church to be a new family formed in Jesus Christ. You've got to think about what a comfort this would have been to many of Mark's earliest readers, many of whom were probably disowned by their own families simply because they renounced the Greek gods or Roman gods that their families worshipped, and they trusted in Christ and worshipped Christ and were baptized into Christ. They would have found great comfort here in the fact that they were not without a family. They had a family, a family that would outlast any natural family. They they had a family, the family of God, an eternal family, a family that they would never lose. And this ought to be a comfort to those of us for whom, you know, for whatever reason, we don't have the gift of a healthy or close-knit natural family. Maybe you're estranged from your family for some reason, or maybe they just live far away. Maybe your vision for your future involving family has not turned out the way that you thought, and you're still single or without children or whatever it may be. But, but see how beautiful it is here that Jesus is saying, you, you have a family. You have spiritual parents. And spiritual brothers and sisters and spiritual children, you can look to your left and your right this morning and you see the gift of God giving you a family. What a testimony to you, to to God's goodness and provision for us. And yet so often in our particular brand of Christianity in America, church can all too easily be treated as a provider of religious goods. It's probably hard to overestimate how much consumerism has influenced our way of life in America, even when it comes to church. How easy it is to approach church as a place wherein one pays a tithe and shows up once a week and gets the goods that one pays for. And the moment church becomes costly or inconvenient or doesn't meet expectations, we're on to the next one. And yet when one approaches church in that way, they're actually missing out on experiencing one of God's gracious gifts to us, God's gracious gift of a family a people in place where we know and are known by one another, a people in place where we forgive and experience forgiveness, a people in place wherein we encourage and can be encouraged, a people in place where we can have a taste of relationship and community as God always intended it. Receive God's gift. Approach church as family, not as a consumer. And then last, revel in the fact that Jesus calls us family. I wonder if you realize how significant this is. That, that, that Jesus, the Son of God, the eternal one himself, graciously condescends to call broken, sinful humanity like you and me family. He doesn't call us slaves or servants, although he's our master. He doesn't treat us like subjects, although he's our king. He doesn't even just give us the the, the benefit of calling us friends, although he's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Here, he's willing to refer to us in such intimate terms, with such affection, with such familiarity, with such devotion, with such 
tenderness, with such warmth, he's willing to call us family. Hebrews 2.11 astoundingly says that Jesus, he's not ashamed to call us brothers. He delights in calling us brothers and sisters and mothers. He delights in calling us family. Some time ago, I I called you to rehearse and, and remind six truths to yourself every single day. Truths that will give you a stability and resiliency to face whatever life throws at you. Do you remember what they were? One, God is my father. Second, I am his child. Third, my savior is my brother. Fourth, every Christian is my brother too. Fifth, my home is with God and his people forever. And sixth, every day is one day closer to that glorious day. God is my father, I am his child, my savior is my brother, every Christian is my brother too, my home is with God and his people forever, every day is one day closer. Six truths you remind yourself of every single day, truths that that no matter what happens, no matter what suffering we encounter, no matter what rejection we face, whatever difficulties we experience, whatever hardships we endure, however badly we sin and however badly we make a mess of our lives, we can have stability and resiliency because here's the reality. We are loved beyond all measure. We are loved By God, he calls himself our father. He calls us his children. We are loved beyond all measure because Jesus, our savior, calls himself our brother. We have an enduring family, an enduring identity that cannot be taken away from us, not for all of eternity. We have a secure position in the family of God, which Jesus guarantees by his perfect and authoritative word, by his all-sufficient death for us on the cross, by his victorious resurrection, and by his gracious gift of the Holy Spirit. My friends, God is forming a new family for us, which is centered on Jesus Christ, our Savior, our brother, our family forever. Revel in that. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the gift of your word. Would you empower us to be faithful hearers and doers of your word? We also give you thanks for the gift of a new family in Christ Jesus, that he is our brother, that you are our father, and that we are all siblings and family with one another in and through him and by him. We pray that you would help us to be faithful hearers and faithful hearers uh, and doers of your word this morning as we respond to this and live into this reality that you have declared over us in your son. In his name we pray, amen.